G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. I'm really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast. We don't ask for much return, but we'd be incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcast or Acast or wherever you're listening to your podcast and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great, um, but we could appreciate a bit of your time if you could do that. So joining, joining Brian, Brian and myself virtually or in our virtual studio is uh, Professor Dan Brockman, um, who is one of our uh, pro- one of our professors of small animal surgery here at the RVC. And, and I, I think, Dan, this is is this your um, 20, 20 years at the the RVC? Would that be that be right? Yeah, yeah. I can't claim to be the new kid on the block anymore, can I? I've been here for twenty years. Just a little bit. <laughs> Just, just a little bit over. Well, um, well, well. Thank you for uh, spending a little bit of time with us today, and we thought we'd um, uh, talk about gastric dilatation and, and volvulus because uh, I, I know that um, it's been something that you've looked at really th- throughout your career, which is uh, which is which is quite quite interesting. Um, so um, I, I thought I would sort of skip a bit over the. The stabilization bit, if 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 that's all right, and maybe ask you more about um, the the sort of surgical aspect to it. But could I ask you, is there anything particular that you look for in stabilization, or or have you had a preference for people to, I don't know, place stomach tubes or chokerization, or does that interfere with your surgical management? No, I think I think broadly speaking, it. Uh, it doesn't make a huge amount of difference. What what we're really looking for, and I've been very fortunate over the years because I've always worked with a very uh, capable and able uh, critical care service in, in, in the jobs that I've done. But uh, target-driven uh, resuscitation, so uh, normalization or close to normalization of heart rate, respiratory rate, um, and so on. And also, um, uh, decompression of the stomach by some means because we've always been um, had the intention at least of taking these dogs to surgery rapidly and that's a whole different discussion but because in in the institutions I've worked in we've always had the goal of taking these uh, animals to surgery rapidly uh, then whether the gastric decompression is relatively temporary i.e gastrocentesis or relatively permanent orogastric uh, intubation and possibly even the placement of a nasogastric tube isn't quite so critical but that's uh, something I think that be, would be uh, quite important if uh, the goal of the resuscitation wasn't necessarily to take them to surgery in your own institution but rather to ship them somewhere uh, in the, the, that case um, securing um, good cardiovascular stability and also um, durable gastric gastric decompression is uh, more important I feel and and I suppose you've seen a lot of different types of that that sort of stabilization um, before with with tubes or trochlearization and you said you it doesn't really matter <coughs> sorry excuse me um but do you, would if you were involved in the stabilization do you, do you have a preference or does it matter um I I think uh it's nice if you can uh, have a, an animal that's thoroughly decompressed. And I think um, doing an uh, orogastric decompression with a with a tube, uh, a wide bore tube, um, is probably the most useful way to achieve that. Um, 
but uh, obviously not all animals will be amenable to that kind of decompression um, and not all it's not always possible to achieve that decompression in a, a conscious animal so I think you have to be um, sort of sensible in terms of um, how far you go uh, to achieve decompression we we did study intra-abdominal pressure in GDV dogs when I worked at the University of Pennsylvania and we demonstrated that um, the intra-abdominal pressure which could be sometimes as high as 35-40 millimeters of mercury um, could be reduced to normal physiological range simply by needle trocarization um, and so uh, I think if you've achieved that and and you've seen the hemodynamic ben benefits of that um, then then that's entirely good enough. Excellent. And um, and so when you're um, so when you go into into surgery itself, do you have any um, concerns like before you make a, a first incision? Are you thinking about what might be there or the or the um, the where the actual normal abdominal content should be and where they are when you make an incision? Um, I, I think uh, for, for most of us who uh, do this regularly, we, we get very uh, comfortable and, and uh, uh, very comfortable with, with what we're likely to see and what we're um, going to achieve as surgery. I think the real, the real issue is for um, folks out there in, in practices, even in um, busy urban small animal practices, you might not see uh, more than two or three patients like this a year. And so it's really an exploration into the unknown or a voyage into the unknown uh, almost each time. And so um, we do approach these through what we consider to be the most versatile abdominal approach, the ventral midline celiotomy. Um, and of course, uh, one has to be aware of the fact that if the stomach hasn't been um, really nicely decompressed or if the, the as sometimes happens the stomach has subsequently filled with air again um, then the stomach might be pushed against the ventral abdominal wall um, and also if, if you're in the very unfortunate situation where you're operating on a dog that's had a previous bout of gastric dilation and volvulus um, it, it's a good idea to 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 try and find out what kind of surgery had been done the first time around because some techniques for um, securing the stomach in its normal position involve suturing the stomach to the previous incision in the body wall and so you might find yourself going through the body wall and then all the way through the full thickness of the stomach. That's a pretty rare event um, but yeah the, the ventral midline celiotomy is by far and away the most versatile and what we are hoping to see uh, or expecting to see is probably uh, a moderate uh, hemoperitoneum. Um, so suction is going to be very useful, uh, but also a dilated stomach uh, that has flipped into the amental bursa. So the stomach that you see as you enter the abdomen will be enveloped uh, by the omentum and therefore illustrating that it's rotated. And so do you go straight in, Dan, to try and derotate the, the stomach or do you evaluate other things before you do that? Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, it, it does depend a little bit, but uh, there is experimental evidence that the longer the stomach is malpositioned, 
um, uh, the worse the local gastric vascular wall, uh, gastric wall vascular compromise is. So there is um, a theoretical reason to um, return the stomach to its normal position um, as quickly as you can. And so most of us will do that. The practical reality is that if the stomach is quite dilated, um, you won't be able to perform a, a thorough, complete exploratory ciliotomy. So you need to return the stomach to its normal position and then have another uh, attempt at decompressing it thoroughly before um, you actually complete the rest of your abdominal organ evaluation. And what is your preferred method of decompressing once you think it's in the, the right place? And I suppose it would ask, that how do you make sure that it's in the right place, that you haven't, um, I suppose, twisted it even even further? Um, well, the, so the, to answer the second part of that first, the, the, the normal rotation of the stomach is, uh, when it rotates, is in a clockwise uh, direction. And so I'm typically standing on the right side of the patient. And so the pylorus should be immediately adjacent to the body wall that's closest to you. Um, and if the pylorus has rotated in the standard uh, direction, then it will have traveled ventrally and over onto the left-hand side and very often will be um, dorsal on the left uh, or in the dorsal left quadrant of the abdomen. And so with my right hand sliding down the body wall on the left-hand side, if you can find um, the pylorus, uh, gently grasp the pylorus and then with your left hand put pressure on the dilated stomach, it will usually flip so that it's um, back in its normal position um, quite simply. Again, if it's very distended, it might be a little bit more difficult than if you've been able to successfully decompress it prior to surgery. But once we've got it in a normal position and we, we check to make sure that, of course, the lesser curvature is cranial to the greater curvature, the pylorus is on the right side and the fundus is on the left side. Then um, uh, what I would like to do is I, I get the uh, anaesthetist or someone at the front end of the animal to pass the same type of tube that we would have decompressed it with uh, in the emergency room. So an equine nasogastric tube, um, typically these are bigger dogs and they tolerate uh, an equine nasogastric tube. Uh, with uh, end holes and side holes so that uh, if one of them gets blocked, you've still got a chance to drain uh, stuff uh, uh, effectively. And uh, I have my hand just on the gastroesophageal junction inside the abdomen so that I can alert the person gently advancing the tube down when they've gone slipped into uh, the stomach. Obviously, um, there's going to be fluid uh, already in the esophagus and we need to make sure and the anesthetist makes, needs to make sure that the uh, endotracheal tube is uh, cuff is inflated appropriately uh, and we will need to evacuate the oral cavity and the pharynx typically of fluid before we recover the animal but once we've got the tube into uh, the stomach hopefully it will spontaneously um, deflate the stomach if it doesn't then uh, we have a system where we pour uh, body temperature, um, tap water 
into the orogastric tube and then create a siphon effect so that we can, by doing that repeatedly, uh, hopefully um, encourage some of the particulate material that will inevitably be in the stomach to come out of the orogastric tube and uh, decompress the stomach that way. Of course, what you have to do before you um, perhaps do that, but it should be evident at the time of surgery, is make sure you haven't got um, a spontaneous disintegration or necrosis of the, the gastric wall. But typically, if that's the case, the stomach is deflated. And so, so that probably leads on to <clears throat> how do you how do you actually evaluate the the, the gastric wall? <clears throat> sorry, itself and. Um, and do you, do you do you have like a time limit that you set yourself? And I know there's a lot of experiential learning sort of with this, but but uh, and I know that certain colours would um, make you a bit sort of concerned about looking at the the gastric wall. But do you do you you know count to to uh, two minutes and see if the colour sort of returns to to normal looking, or do you in, incise it to see if it bleeds? Do you or do you do a combination of of a, of a lot of things when you're trying to evaluate if you're unsure whether um, there's been compromise to the blood flow of that stomach? Yeah, the, I mean, there, first of all, there is no perfect way uh, to do it. Um, there's lots of theoretical advantages to one system over another, you know, in, intravenous fluorescein and, and things like that. Um, but there are essentially um, two organs we need to assess fairly um, rapidly for uh, complications secondary to GDV. One, of course, is the stomach, um, and the other is the spleen. And once we've got the stomach in its normal position, um, we want to and, and, and check that the spleen is in its normal position. I like to have a very quick look at the splenic vein, um, just to make sure there aren't any large thrombi sitting in the splenic vein. Because if there are, and they those thrombi break loose, then they can occlude the portal vein very quickly. And that's a very rapid, um, uh, causes often a very rapid deterioration uh, in the animal. Uh, but then to go back to um, the splenic body, if the splenic body uh, is very congested, which it often is, or the gastric wall is very congested, which it often is, then uh, I think to give it an honest chance to demonstrate its viability, if we're looking at um, venous congestion, uh, you need to give it probably uh, five uh, minutes or so. Again, there is no perfect and, and hard and fast rule here. Um, but obviously, perfusion of the stomach and perfusion of the spleen is going to depend on the systemic uh, arterial pressure. So if you know that you've got a dog that's got uh, a nice blood pressure, it's got uh, uh, 80 of uh, 120 over 80 as a systolic and diastolic, um, and your stomach is still looking discolored uh, after five minutes, then probably that uh, stomach uh, is is compromised. The other thing that I think you know pure, purely practical is to palpate it very carefully and have a feel of the thickness of the stomach wall. The area of the stomach that's most vulnerable. Um, to uh, vascular ischemic injury um, is uh, the fundus around the greater curvature where the short gastric arteries very frequently rupture. And so that part of the stomach is dependent on the collateral flow from the um, 
having lost the gastroepiploic blood flow from the gastric artery, which has got to travel all the way across from the lesser curvature to the greater curvature. So that's the area we're going to focus on. Uh, and uh, if it is discolored and remains discolored, uh, or if it starts out as a gray color rather than um, a, a, a deep sort of red venous congestion color, uh, then you know you're going to have to uh, remove that. Incising through the seromuscular layer uh, until you get active bleeding from arterioles in the seromuscular layer is one way of establishing whether or not the stomach wall is viable enough. And um, that, that's another very practical way to work out whether the stomach is going, is going to be viable or, or uh, once you've made the decision to resect some of the stomach to understand how far you need to go back to have viable uh, stomach wall. But the, the bottom line is a color um, gray uh, or green gray is um, very bad. Um, the sort of purple uh, hue of a, a venous congestion may be bad but can recover. Uh, and so those are the sort of color changes. The wall thickness, if the, the gastric wall is very thin, um, then you've lost probably uh, the mucosal layer, and that's an area of stomach that will probably need to be resected. And um, blood supply, blood flow, uh, and the blood flow to the mucosa is about um, represents about 80% of the blood flow to the stomach. So if you've got blood flowing in the seromuscular layer, which normally has l less blood flow, um, the underlying mucosa, you can be almost certain, is going to be um, viable. So those are sort of practical tips on how to judge um, gastric wall viability. But the, the good news is that um, less than, uh, perhaps less than 10% of dogs with GDV that are properly stabilized will, will have any uh, partial gastric uh, necrosis that requires uh, surgical attention. And, and when you surgically attend these, so when you decide that you need to remove um, a, a portion, is there any preference in your approach to, to that? Do you, do you take a, a, a reasonable margin where there is healthy tissue or do you invaginate them sometimes or, or does it depend? Well, yeah, I, I think um, I, I always get asked about um, – technique for partial gastric resection and in some ways um, you know we all uh, stick to techniques that we are comfortable with and that we have uh, uh, that no work for us I've always worked in hospitals that have surgical stapling equipment uh, and so um, it's relatively straightforward to remove pretty large portions of the stomach either with um, thoracoabdominal staples or with the uh, gastrointestinal anastomosis staples. So um, yes, I would always um, try to ensure that I've got a margin of well vascularized tissue that I'm excising um, uh, so that I'm as sure as I can be that my staple line is going to be in viable stomach wall. If you have to, if, if you don't have stapling equipment, but find yourself in a situation where uh, you're doing a manual resection, 
the same guidelines really apply. Um, the important things are uh, to put stay sutures around the stomach so you can sort of mark out the area of the stomach that you're going to remove um, and you've got control of the stomach with these stay sutures so that um, the stomach doesn't flop back into the abdomen, spill gastric contents throughout the abdomen. Um, but yes, pack the stomach off, stay sutures, um, incise full thickness through the gastric wall until you see bleeding from the seromuscular layer, um, and then uh, give yourself a little margin of safety, uh, and uh, then suture the stomach closed in whichever way you would normally for a gastrotomy. But my preference is a two-layer closure with a continuous suture in the submucosa and then uh, interrupted or continuous um, suture layer in the seromuscular uh, tissues. And can I understand, like, at what point would you, how do you make a decision about whether to manage the, the spleen if you're concerned about a, um, a, a thrombus in that or managing sort of gastric necrosis? So if you have both of those things concurrently, do you, how do you make a decision about what to manage first? first. Um, I think the thing that's the most urgent or urgently requires attention is if you, uh, when you examine the splenic vein and you see a, a large thrombus in the splenic vein, I think you really need to clamp the splenic vein and the splenic artery very quickly to re, uh, so that that thrombus doesn't go into the portal vein. Uh, and then you're committed at that point to uh, splenectomy. That's pretty rare. Um, and, and I think over the years, um, I've seen that be an issue in only a, a very small number of dogs. The rest of the time, you restore everything back to its normal anatomical position. Even if you recognize that this, the short uh, gastric uh, vessels have ruptured, the spleen may still be viable. Uh, and so um, you give that congested spleen uh, a few uh, minutes, as we've discussed, to return to a more normal color. But if the color isn't returning, then um, you may need to perform a, a partial or, or complete splenectomy. If you identify that the dog's got partial gastric necrosis and partial um, uh, or splenic necrosis requiring splenectomy, I think probably most of us would take the spleen out first um, and then uh, address uh, the stomach. Again, for the, the reason that if, you, if you've committed to taking the spleen out because it's uh, non-viable, then uh, the risk of shedding thrombi into the system would be uh, greater from the spleen than it might be from the, from the stomach. Again, a lot of the time, the part of the spleen that's compromised is the uh, part adjacent to the short gastric vessels. And so partial splenectomy is very easily achievable uh, using stapling equipment. But if you don't have stapling equipment, um, I think you'll find it very frustrating to try and suture the splenic capsule. So you're better off doing a total splenectomy in that situation. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Dan. And I've been like moving on to, um, uh, to pexying the, the, the stomach it, itself. So um, I imagine with the same thing is what people feel comfortable with, probably what you're, what you're taught as well but also there's a, a plenty of techniques that are de described and have you focused on on one in your in your in your 
career or have you tried have you dabbled in in a few and and come to to one conclusion um i've i've dabbled in a few um i think there are so many different techniques out there that uh, um it wouldn't make much sense uh to have tried them all um but uh i started out my uh early in my career using the tube gastropexy which is uh um uh, we used to use large diameter Foley catheters through the uh, right body wall, just caudal to the last rib and just off the midline and straight into the uh, pyloric antrum through a purse string and then place four single simple interrupted sutures around that um, that tube entry site and pull it up to the, the body wall. That works very well. Um, one of the theoretical complications of tube gastropexy is septic peritonitis, but um, that's a theoretical complication rather than uh, one that's ever been realized. If you look at all of the retrospective studies where tube gastropexy was performed, septic peritonitis um, doesn't feature as a complication. Um, but, um, circumcostal gastropexy, belt loop gastropexy, incisional gastropexy. Um, they all, uh, I think, work very well. And I think your comment was right on the money that you actually want to do what you're most comfortable doing. Um, and again, for those of us um, that do surgery on gastric dilation volvulus patients regularly, uh, we'll all have our favored technique and uh, we'll use that to good effect. The issue arises, uh, again, if you're in a private practice, uh, a primary healthcare setting, only seeing two or three uh, in the whole practice, and you've got six vets, so one, any one vet might see one every two years, uh, then they won't have the luxury of saying, oh, this is what I'm familiar with, and this is what I like to do, so I'll do this one. So um, occasionally, uh, that can be a little bit uh, of an anxious moment, but the simplest technique, I believe, for most folks to use is a simple incisional gastropexy, and uh, that would be um, a perfectly adequate gastropexy for uh, for most dogs. Um, it's straightforward. It's easy. It creates a seromuscular incision in the pyloric antrum that you suture to a partial thickness incision through the peritoneal cavity and usually through the transverse abdominus muscle. So you get primary healing of uh, the pyloric antrum to the body wall and it forms a, a very good secure gastropexy. Do you, do you use any landmarks for, for that where you're securing it on the body wall, Dan? Yeah, so um, it's similar to uh, as, uh, the landmarks I mentioned in the tube gastropexy, but you want to pick a, a location just in the average sort of Labrador sized dog, uh, two, three centimeters caudal to the last rib um, and about two, three centimeters off the midline, you're going to make a, an incision through the peritoneum and then open up uh, the transverse abdominus muscle over a length of, again, about four or five centimeters. And then just with the stomach decompressed, once you've made that incision, um, you don't want to get too close to the pyloric canal, but the pyloric antrum will match up to that incision and you're going to make an incision uh, in the pyloric antrum through the seromuscular layers the same length 
as that incision you've made in the body wall. The real trick is uh, that it's uh, far easier to suture these uh, going from dorsal to ventral and start with the cranial part of the incisional gastropexy first and finish up with the caudal part to make life easy for yourself. Um, the, 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 only, the only gastropexy technique I'm not a real, real fan of um, is the technique that incorporates suturing the stomach wall into the abdominal closure incision. Um, and, and that really is simply because if someone has to go into the abdomen again and uh, the, the patient record is not uh, complete or, or uh, the person making the, the subsequent approach to the abdomen isn't aware, then you can find yourself slicing through the body wall and going straight into the stomach, which of course is not ideal. Thank you very much. It's, a, it's very, um, very thorough indeed. And, and do you do anything... Um, anything else after you've um, uh, after you've done a gastropexy, or 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 is is that sort of you're, you're happy um, with everything? Always, um, will you know? It's it's surgery sort of also does the ABC um, uh, things to, first. So we have a priority list, and of course, the priority is to decompress the stomach so that you can then evaluate all the internal organs. Um, you might have to deviate from uh, your plan to deal with any life, apparently uh, rapid um, hemorrhage or life-threatening hemorrhage. Um, but once you're happy that there isn't any ongoing hemorrhage, then you go about the business of evaluating the spleen and the stomach wall. If everything's okay, fix the stomach in place, um, uh, address the spleen as required, but then um, complete the job by having a thorough look around the rest of the abdomen just to make sure uh, that you haven't uh, missed any uh, bleeding vessels in the omentum, for example. Uh, and also uh, gen uh, gentle lavage with warm saline so that you can uh, remove any residual blood clots and uh, uh, hopefully clean the abdomen up for two reasons. One, so that you can be absolutely sure you can see what you need to see in terms of uh, risk of ongoing hemorrhage and um, removing those blood clots will also improve the speed of recovery and, and reduce the risk of uh, abdominal contaminants uh, becoming established as an infection post-surgery. And going on with that theme, Dan, do you have any other particular tips or things that you wish someone told told you um, initially when you when you started to operate on on these dogs? Um, as you said, you know the, the the tip about the approach to um, uh, suturing your incisional gastropexy. Do you have any other tips that you you wish someone had, had told you before you um, went down this path? Uh, that, that's a great question. Um, uh, I suppose just a little bit of historical perspective. I did a, a three-year surgery residency or period of surgical training at the University of Liverpool. Um, and in the three years uh, that I was at the University of Liverpool, I saw one gastric dilation and volvulus. Um, so we didn't see emergency patients there. Uh, and so when I moved from Liverpool to the University of Pennsylvania, where um, most of the big studies of gastric dilation and volvulus had uh, come from the East Coast uh, 
veterinary schools or veterinary centers like the Animal Medical Center in the University of Pennsylvania, I was really very, very nervous about uh, um, having to deal with these patients. So I actually uh, used to call in, I was on faculty then, but I used to call the residents who by the time they got to their third year of their residency had probably done 50 or 60 GDVs and uh, they used to come in and help me. So most of the tips that I got uh, about treatment of GDVs, the resident surgery resident team at the University of Pen Pennsylvania taught me. And uh, I guess there were a couple of things that they taught me. Uh, and uh, one of them was that uh, or that you shouldn't you don't shouldn't rush providing every every other aspect of the stabilization and the critical care management and the anesthetic management was under control um how quickly you did things uh, wasn't going to influence the outcome and so um when things get anxious in surgery uh, sort of a mist can descend and, and uh, you start doing things very randomly that don't get you any further along and so important to take a deep breath um, relax and, and work through things methodically. Yes, there were some tips about um, gastropexy techniques and gastric resection techniques um, that you sort of discover as you go through. But um, th the most important thing is that you've got to have a, a methodical approach, um, a, systema a systematic approach, and, and don't try and rush it. Don't think that you've got to do everything very, very quickly, because you'll make more mistakes if you try and rush it than if you're just uh, methodical. Thank you. Thank you very much. Can Can I also ask? I know you've done, you've done um, or you've been involved in a number of different studies with GDVs in in, um, <clears throat> in particular, um, as amongst as other things as well. But could I ask? Is there anything that you any questions that you feel are left unanswered from um, from the studies and and work that you've done? Well, I think we started out um, really documenting. My, my very first publication uh, on GDV was really documenting or updating um, what could be achieved. So the, the survival rate, um, the, the survival rate for GDV until that point uh, that was published was a very poor survival rate. And we demonstrated in the, in a good clinical environment, you can get very high survival rates uh, for gastric dilation and volvulus, especially dogs that don't have partial gastric necrosis, the survival was extremely high. And even for those with partial gastric necrosis, um, the survival was uh, nearly 70%. Uh, then um, my goal was to do a prospective risk factor analysis um, for dogs with GDV. But the logistical hurdles to achieve that uh, when these dogs come into a hospital um, any time of the day or night and might uh, meet any number of different uh, clinicians. The, the logistical uh, problems seemed insurmountable. But I, I do think a prospective risk, risk factor analysis is still something that could be very helpful. But what we're really trying to establish for the owners is um, whether their individual dog um, has a high probability of coming through or a low probability of coming through um, uh, the, the treatment. And what I have also learned is that um, whilst we may know how a population of animals would behave and what the balance of probabilities might be, 
for any individual dog, it's very, very difficult to predict. So we have a number of markers of disease severity that we all look to, lactate levels, um, mean blood pressure levels, and, and, and so on. Um, and uh, I suppose the fact that we haven't really uh, got any further along being able to pinpoint which dogs um, are definitely doomed versus which ones are uh, we should be more optimistic about is a little bit frustrating. But overall, we have very good success with this disease. And so deaths as a result of GDV in our hospital currently are a very rare occurrence. Um, I suppose the other component is is our understanding of the pathogenesis and um, uh, obviously risk factors for survival are, are interesting, but um, what uh, avoidance tactics we could employ uh, would be even more beneficial for most pet owners and uh, um, dog breeders. And uh, I think we know uh, some of the risk factors that are involved uh, much better now, anxiety, um, anesthetic agents, some dietary uh, uh, predispositions. Um, all of these are a, a little, little better. We're a little more aware of now, um, and the fact that it's a multifactorial disease, uh, in that um, GDV can be caused by a lot of different uh, or initiating uh, and precipitating factors. Uh, but I suppose there isn't one single thing that we uh, can speak to that say you stop this and you'll cut the uh, prevalence of GDV in half because um, it's not that it's not it's just not that simple a disease. So a few uh, I guess a few little thoughts but um, we, we I think we have a much better understanding of once a dog has an episode and is under treatment which things we can identify clinically that are markers of disease severity, inflammatory mediators, arrhythmias, uh, and so on. Um, I'm not sure that the treatment has changed hugely that much. But it, it does, <clears throat> sorry, it does sound though that your your initial like, work was to try and sort of highlight it wasn't such a terrible thing. And I suppose there's other disease processes that have got that sort of label um, that either through medical or surgical management have, have been shown in high saying actually it's it's not necessarily so bad and 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 that and that's great. I, I think I think Badu was um I heard somebody talk about the the death snap test, but but obviously that's you know it's it's not really going to happen. And also, if it did, would you like to base the the basis of you know one um, factor um, on the on the outcome? You know, would 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 we like that if that was the the case with with us? So, well, absolutely. And, and one well, interestingly, I was looking through uh, sort of GDV publications pop into my inbox every now and then, but. Uh, one of the um, one of the things we do know, um, frustratingly, again, that it's a rather expensive things to thing to treat, and w one of the uh, factors that predicts um, treatment outcome uh, is whether or not the animal is insured, and so pre-treatment euthanasia um, for uninsured animals obviously is um, 
much higher than uh, pre-treatment euthanasia for uninsured animals. And I suppose the, the message there is that, uh, you know, responsible pet ownership um, means um, making uh, some provision for medical services or at least understanding, um, you know, what's achievable, what's not achievable, the resources you've got available. And so, um, you know, I think that's an interesting statistic well thank you very much for your your time uh, today dan I, I think i think pretty much covered um uh, hopefully all that the surgical aspects i suppose there's one um elephant in the room that uh, i thought I'd, i might i might bring up um if you indulge me was um you, you started making sourdough dan and could you could you explain how how this came about <laughs> Yeah, actually, um, one of my lockdown activities has been to play around with yeast in its various forms. Um, uh, so, uh, yes, I've brewed a lot of uh, homebrew beer and I started uh, uh, making sourdough bread. And uh, we, we make our own bread anyway. And I'd always uh, shied away from sourdough bread because it seems so complicated. But it's like all of these things. Um, uh, there are folks... Um, probably like GDV, whose self-interest is to make GDV treatment very, very complicated so that no one else can do it. And the same is true of sourdough bread. There are lots of people out there that want to make sourdough bread so complicated that no one else will ever do it. But actually, it's quite simple. And it's great fun, and it does taste fantastic. It it, it is good, isn't it? There's not one of my uh, lockdown things as well. So, so maybe we can uh, discuss um, our, our uh, how we how we um, cultivate our sourdough on a on a different sort of podcast. But um, but thank you so much for your time today, um, uh, Dan. And I know you you uh, um, got to go off into theatre, which is probably the, the best place for for surgeons to 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 be. So um, so thank you very much again, and uh, we'll wrap it up there. So thanks everyone for listening and don't forget to hit the subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device and that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast if you leave us a five-star review that would be fantastic tell your friends vet friends anybody we're, we're happy for anyone to listen and we'll play some show notes on the rbc pages so if you just type in rbc clinical podcast into your search engine of choice it should be top of the tree if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast please get in touch you can either email dbarfield.rbc.ac.uk or tweet at don barfield until next time bye-bye